Welcome to this Law in Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the CEO of Law in Sport. I'm delighted to welcome our special guest today, Bobby Sharma. He's a special advisor to the Sports and Entertainment Group at Foley and Lardner. He's had over nearly 20 years experience in the sports, media and entertainment industry. Um, he's also the founding partner of Electronic Sports Group, ESG, a market-leading esports advisory firm, which helps investment and business leaders navigate and operate in the burgeoning billion-dollar esports industry. He is also a partner at GACP Sports, a sports-related private equity firm, and the chairman of Blue Devil Holdings, LLC, an international sports media and entertainment investment company. Previously, Bobby served as a senior vice president of the global head of basketball strategic initiatives at IMG and as a vice president and general counsel at the NBA Development League at the National Basketball Association for almost a decade. Bobby, it's absolutely fantastic to have you with us. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me. Um, I wanted to get you onto the podcast because you've been involved in and uh, Foley and Arno have been involved in a, a rather interesting project for for a, a number of years now, and it, it being your esports survey that you run on an annual basis, and this is the fourth year that you've done it. It's got some great information inside of it. Um, you do, I know that you run it with the in conjunction with Sports Business Journal and the Esports Observer. I wondered if you could give us some of the key highlights that come from the report. Yeah, I, I mean, I urge everybody out there to, to go to Foley.com and uh, and download the report. And we'll add a link, by the way, so there will be a link. Oh, should... terrific, terrific. So it's uh, it's it's a very digestible uh, summary document that we have. But I think what's really fascinating about the survey is that this is the fourth year we've been doing it, and it's not a reflection of the market. It's a ref- uh, It's a reflection of the perceptions of the market. But because it's such a young market, it's uh, often shaped by those perceptions, right? Perceptions, reality. And um, but what's impressed me, uh, well, it's been it's been very interesting to see the evolution of, of the survey, to see the differences year to year um, and the changes year to year. And some of the, 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 the questions, not all the questions are repeated every year, but a lot are like there's a, a you know, there's certain threads that we want to see where the shifts are. But um for me, the key takeaways this year, um, well, really there was one primary takeaway, which is that that the perception of the market and in some ways meaning the market itself is becoming increasingly sophisticated. And keeping in mind, the audience for this survey um, is very targeted in terms of uh, industry professionals. Um, we uh, There is a breakdown, I believe, in the report of, of the respondents ge- geographically and um, you know, part of the industry sector, but pretty much every respondent is part of the sports and media entertainment industry. It's 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 very global. Um, uh, you know, people from the investment side, from the operations side, from the brand side. Um, so there's all sorts of um, uh, views reflected, but there's a general understanding of the shifts um, in the in the esports industry, and then also there's an increasingly sophisticated understanding. Of the industry itself that wasn't there in the early years. Um, for example, uh, I think that there still continues to be, a, you know, year after year, a very bullish um, attitude towards investment in the space. 
uh, and, and even through the pandemic. And I think that's because there were a lot of good tailwinds for esports through the pandemic and its ability to pivot uh, digitally and, uh, and, and for events to migrate online and including even for traditional sports um, that, that started doing some, um, some video game competition like you know, NASCAR, for example, and had, had a lot of success with that on broadcast television. But, um, but yeah, I think there's an, a recognition that the next, that there will be continued investment, but that investment won't be necessarily from uh, sports leagues or high net worth individuals, but rather from esports focused, meaning domain expert uh, investment firms um, that have the understanding and expertise uh, to, to navigate the space. Um, and I think also fundamentally hand in hand with that, I think there's, uh, especially from the traditional sports world, there's a, there's a recognition that it's not the same as traditional sports and, and that there is uh, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of differences. There's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of complexity uh, to, to the, the ecosystem, to the culture, and then to the business models within it, which are still sorting themselves out. But, but yeah, that to me is, um, is, a, is an, one of the no sorry the primary takeaway and another another piece of that too uh i'd say is you know it's it's sort of subtle but it's there um if you look at the future uh, uh revenue drivers uh and the survey media rights has fallen over the years uh, and uh and it's it's sponsorship that everyone's kind of leaning into um which is good and bad i think it's good because that is a reality um, um, and it's, and, and that the, the, the fact that the, the perceptions are catching up with that reality is a positive thing in terms of what, what should happen now. Um, but, uh, it, it's, it's a negative thing in the sense that, yeah, there, there is not a, a mature media market for esports yet, which pretty much lives entirely online. It's, it doesn't really have the benefit of broadcast television money and, um, and that online ecosystem is pretty dominated by two companies by uh by twitch you know slash amazon on the live side and by uh youtube and uh, slash google on the on the vod side so it's um yeah so i think you know to me that that's that's the primary um yeah most interesting takeaway of this year's survey that that the industry is is uh not just you know quickly maturing but the understanding of it is as well and that, that's, that's a very interesting sort of observation that you, so what you described is, you know, a, a sort of sector that a lot of people didn't really know, truly understand, let's say from the traditional side, um, as you were saying, then you've, the people recognize this actually is something worth looking at, essentially investing in, and there is um, a great opportunity there. And then you get the professional service firms and others then uh, looking um, for routes to, to, to engage. What's, what are the key legal issues then this has thrown up, um, you know, as the market is maturing, or at least the perception of it, it, it is maturing? Yeah, I mean, the market is maturing. Like, make no mistake, they're, you know, they're, uh, and, and to take a step back, yeah, I think in the beginning there was a, a sort of a, a land rush of uh, especially from the traditional sports side, but a lot, a lot of pure capital just coming in and wanting to, to plant flags in, in anything. And for the traditional sports interests, a lot of that was, uh, you know, based on their understanding of, of the sports business, um, which, which was this, you know, the stick and ball model of tickets and sponsorship and, and media. And um, 
a lot of that, there, there are a lot of translation errors with that in terms of um, where, how to, how to translate an audience of, you know, it's been measured uh, upwards of 500 million, half a billion people, um, how to translate that into the same business um, success that they have with traditional sports. So, um, so yeah, I think um, there, there's been a lot of, that said, there's been a lot of, of success stories within esports. Um, some of the teams have gotten some really interesting models, um, and they're all very different, which is another new, you know, you know complexity to, to esports. Um, and some of the infrastructure companies are, are doing great things. Some of the publisher, all the publishers, are pretty much you know, doing uh, doing well with this, given their uh, their outsized influence. But uh, I say all that to set up the, the dynamics a little bit. Because as far as the legal issues go, I mean, it's such a broad question. Like that's like saying, what are the legal issues in the media uh, industry or uh, much less the sports industry or much less the energy sector. But, um, but there, there are a lot. And, and a lot of it is, um, you know, I think in the beginning, there was not really, that um, <laughs> wasn't really the first thing being dealt with. Right. I think people were trying to, to plant stakes in the ground. I think people were trying to uh, since then, uh, you know, figure out business models uh, and, and so on. But uh, I think, um, you know, as in our survey, um, for example, if you if you look at the results, um, it's sort of a little bit of everything. I think it's it's pretty much the concerns are, are, are evenly spread across things like cybersecurity and malware attacks, which pretty much affect every, you know, which do pretty much affect every industry. Certainly, um, obviously, the competitive integrity of, of competitive sports, gaming, uh, and esports. Um, but that's the highest, um, but very close to 42%, very close to it. Um, IP rights, licensing issues, which again, I think, you know, sort of translates across everything. Um, the probably unique to esports and uh, is cyberbullying. Um, maybe not, you know, entirely unique, but, but uh, highly unique. And uh, that's that's a, uh, one of the higher concerns at 38%. Um, 36% is the, uh, you know, on the labor side, I think there were, a lot of issues and concerns given the youth of the ta playing talent and, and streaming talent, frankly. And uh, the uh, especially as these leagues and teams got organized, I think there are a lot of labor type of issues. So those were, those concerns are at 36 percent um, and 35 percent. I guess we've got uh, we got two two labor category questions. Um, uh, the former being more contract oriented and the, and the, and the latter being more about uh, uh, unionization and classification of employees. Um, and then, I mean, this, so I'm, I'm already up to number six and that's, and the range is 42% to 33%, right? So it's still pretty close. And so do you, do you think then that the, that what you're describing to me just sounds like, you know, normal, as you were saying, um, you know, like with the tech industry, right? When you see uh, a sector that, that grows relatively quickly, people don't have time necessarily to be as diligent or as, um, they say mindful of legal issues as they're just trying to keep pace with the growth. And so we sounded to me like, you know, just seeing this rapid growth, everyone's trying to sort of, you know, deal with all the issues as they're arising. And, and uh, no doubt they, as you mentioned, they increase in complexity, uh, the bigger the sector grows or bigger, bigger, the, you know, the team grows or the, um, the, the competition. Right. And I, and I think as, as the, the larger the economics grow, the larger the stakes and the more important those issues. And, and frankly, as a practical matter, 
the larger the economics grow, the larger the financial capability of dealing with them uh, become, and the visibility. Uh, in term, I was going to say the next one is uh, uh, lack of diversity and potential lawsuits from players involving discrimination and, and gender, sex orientation, that sort of thing. Like the more visible you get, the more successful you are, the more these issues occur, right? They're not even occurring in the beginning. They, they may be there, but they're not coming to a head. So uh, I think this is all part of uh, uh, the inevitable um, uh, consequences of success and, and growth and, um, and just evolution and, and maturity uh, of an industry. So uh, I, I think, um, you know, again, in the beginning, if you rewind even, you know, pre mid 2010s, when esports was still pretty endemic in terms of its investors and operators, there, there, you know, not only was there less capital, but there, there was really a, um, and I hate to use the word sophistication, but there was less sophistication in terms of, um, you know, recognizing those sorts of issues. So, um, you, you know, enter, um, you know, giant VC funds, giant sports entertainment conglomerates like Bob Kraft and Stan Kroenke and, um, you know, much less uh, uh, you know, the, the large media companies that got involved and brands, um, the, these things all start becoming more, uh, more and more to the fore, which is really interesting is gambling is uh, also right there at 32%. That's probably, um, I think that's going to be a, a major issue for traditional sports, much less esports in the coming years um, as gambling becomes more widespread, at least here in the U.S., um and um uh which is interesting right like again i think that's not a crisis until it's a crisis but i think it's inevitable um given you know given the uh, given what we know yeah, yeah 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 you know i think it's great that we're you know regulating these things and shining a light and doing them in the light instead of the dark but part of the problem with that is you make it really i was just talking to someone about this yesterday is that you make it really easy for these problems to occur when you you know everyone's got a casino in their exactly. pocket or a, book, exactly. a bookie yeah. in their pocket as opposed to um you know having to go you know find the uh um bad actor to, to make the transaction happen right well funny enough on the on the separate note we i discuss this a lot in the, in 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 this is that what people don't realize is that there is an increased prevalence or at least awareness as you say because more visibility of match fixing and the issues around that or you know, participants gambling and, you know, all those type of associated issues when you have legalized gambling and I'm pro legalized gambling, but there's this, this assessment that once you do bring it into the light, as you say, that suddenly your problems go away, but it doesn't, it just means you're just more aware of the problems that exist. Um, well, I mean, not, not to go on a tangent, but I mean, think about the United States right now where we have this, this confluence of events where we're monetizing college sports. So you've got 18 to 22 year old, you know, young men and women, you know, kids by some measures at 18, right, who are all of a sudden earning, um, you know, in some cases increasingly directly for playing sports and, and having a, a, a public profile. And they're surrounded by, every, you know, a lot of people with, or everybody, right, you know, with a, a bookie in a casino in their pocket. And, uh, you know, on, and are playing in games that are being wagered on often and with the, you know, hundreds of them in the case of college basketball and, uh, you know, uh, you know, constantly and, um, and, you know, similarly with football, which, which the, all, you know, these have lines set on them. So there's all kinds of opportunities for, you know, bad 
things to occur. Um, Absolutely. I remember I was, I was, I was chairing a panel session for the SLA or the sports association in the U S seven years ago now. And it was a topic was that, that, you know, uh, it was basically on, on betting and, you know, money and corruption, basically. And we had uh, Naomi Stevenson Clark, I think this is Naomi Stevenson Stark, sorry, who was the deputy general counsel, I think, for the NCAA at the time. And we were talking about this in terms of like the, the perfect high risk environment uh, for something going wrong. And likewise, though, bringing it back to the esports, you can totally see those, um, those risk factors and profile within the esports sector. Well, part of, part of the factor with esports is that it, it's all, it, it, in pretty much consumed on devices that also have those gambling interfaces. It, it's got a legacy of, of uh, you know, crypto use just um, for facility and, and uh, you know, ease of uh, transactions. So it's all sort of baked in already. And uh, if you rewind to, you know, back, you know, in your neck of the woods back in 2015, so this is a long time ago, eons ago in, you know, esports term, there was an illegal, skins ring that was shut down um for csgo just on on skins just gambling on skins for one particular game um by the uk government because there were children gambling on it but the staggering fat figure attached to that is that it was a five billion dollar illegal gambling ring so imagine the economics of esports uh if you know if and when it it fully becomes uh, a regulated revenue stream um, once that that's able to to happen. So so there, there that's I, for whatever I'm, I'm actually surprised that that's that's been a little slow to uh, to develop, especially given that regulated gambling occurs in a lot of you know, parts of the world already fully um, where esports is popular. But um, uh, it, it's it just kind of gives you a. a perspective on the scale of, of what the esports economics can be, um, given the fact that it's just entirely a billion dollar industry presently, and by best projections within a few years could reach close to 2 billion. Uh, but, you know, juxtapose that with the, the entire gaming industry, which is approaching 200 billion. So we're talking esports is really less than a percent of what the gaming industry is at this point. And, um, and if you break it down in terms of, uh, you know, money per capita or you know per per head it's uh it's you know best projections are going to have it a little over two dollars versus traditional sports at least in the u.s which you know can be 10 or you know or 20 times that yeah absolutely i think you make a really good point and you know again the issues of visibility start to become more important as the you know the publishers who you know some of them way more engaged than others when it comes to the development of the esports side of what they do Obviously, that you know, all of a sudden, you know, even if it is only one percent, but it starts to get way more media coverage. Um, you know, they start to have to, you know, because you don't have to look far on those issues of cyberbullying and stuff like that in the esports sector. To they, you know, currently, as, as other people have described to me, the stuff that goes on in the esports environment, there's loads of great stuff going on, but particularly around that, some of the the, the cultural aspects that, if it was say soccer or um, American football, or basketball is in a fans forum. It, yeah, or, or a club was doing it, or they, yeah, their fans were they were facilitating that sort of discussion with the fans. There'll be huge uproar about it. They haven't quite yet got to that point. In terms of then, um, well, that's fascinating to get your perspective on that. So thank you very much. I've been writing down notes. It's brilliant. Um, the one of the things you mentioned in the report then is that um, eighty 
I think it was 88% of over 400 executives surveyed expected investment deals and activity to increase in the first six months of 2022. Uh, can you, for my benefit and for the benefit of our listeners, describe what those deals are kind of centred on um, and what should both the investors and the targets, the the, you know, the, the esports teams or uh, the competitions, what, what do you think they should be sort of have in mind when they're trying to you know, attract or secure investment or invest? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's interesting. So the survey uh, went to market um, I, towards the end of Latin, the last quarter of last year. So November, December, maybe part of October. And uh, it, at the time and prior, I think most of the concept of, of deal activity in esports is centered around the teams, um, which have had, you know, they're pretty lofty valuations, even though it's been a bit of a challenge in order to figure those things out because it's very different than the traditional sports business where you understand the basic revenue streams and they're the same for everybody. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I think the, the, the sort of wild West factor um, still there has still been there and especially the perception in the market, even though that might not be the reality in terms of them being highly investable. Um, I think my reality is to be, you know, my my point of view uh, um, is that the team businesses are very well. They're very different. I don't think that's that's my point of view. I think that's a fact. Um, uh, each of them, if you look at the Forbes list, the top ten teams are all. They're not. There's not. There's not two that are the same in terms of the business models. They all employ a different mix of competitive, uh, you know, purse chasing, media content creation. Um, merchandise, lifestyle, uh, brand, um, and uh, and other, and uh, and some lean into one, some of those things more than others. Some of them focus on certain segments or geographies. Some of them try to monetize their, you know, leverage everything through certain interfaces. Um, uh, and then, of course, there are many of them out there that do, you know, they're just pure purely on the competitive side that are more like the, you know, the old school um, esports, not not the big business esports. So, um, uh, yeah, I think that, I think that's sort of the, the survey is actually speaking to that, like, uh, you know, where are the opportunities with the teams? So my, my point of view, getting back to that is that it's hard and I don't, I think it's become less attractive, uh, for people to put money into teams, uh, into businesses that are sorting themselves out. Um, I think it's, it's probably ironically skewing back more towards venture than it is uh, you know, private equity capital um, in that private equity typically is coming in to, uh, to put its hands on something to, to increase its monetization. But when there's an inability to do that, it becomes less attractive. But I think for the venture investor, um, it's still a pretty exciting space as it figures itself out and you, you bet on good operators and, um, and you know that somebody's gonna leverage um, that big audience. Um, but of course, with the wild card being the sort of outsized power and influence of the publishers, which will lead me to my second point, which is um, uh, in terms of deals going forward, I, I think the, the, the Microsoft deal uh, to purchase Activision Blizzard absolutely shocked everybody in the industry outside of Microsoft and Activision Blizzard, probably just at the very top of Activision Blizzard. Um, in that, um, not only is it just a colossal deal, a $70 billion deal, you know, for any industry is incredibly massive, um, and, uh, you know, hard to, hard to see coming, 
But um, I, I think really what we see now is what has already been a, a unique and somewhat uncomfortable dynamic in, in the esports industry of the weight of the publishers. I think that's going to get you know worse. And uh, and I think the deals going forward, we saw a string of them announced in a in a week. But the reality is, those deals have been worked on for a long time. Um, but um, we saw um, not just the Activision Blizzard deal with Microsoft, but we saw the week prior what had been the biggest gaming deal. I think was the eleven billion dollar um, uh, deal that uh, what am I? Uh, Sony was it Sony? Uh, no, Sony Bungie was, was the week, week after. Get my time. Seven billion. <laughs> I'm trying to remember uh, what was the eleven billion dollar deal. It was uh, oh, take two, um, take two, uh, take two's purchase of uh, uh, um, it's escaping me. But um, but yeah, I think you, you know you see these incredibly big publishers, you know, uh, starting to merge with others, and um, it creates a you know a, a deeper issue. I think with uh, um, with that dynamic, uh, but I think there's going to be more of it. Like sort of to answer your question, I think we're going to see more of that type of industry consolidation, um, you know, for better or for worse, because uh, it, 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 the, the scale of uh, investment that's needed to drive these things forward, I think um, just makes sense. And, um, and on, on the sides of, there's a very short list of companies that can make these deals. Uh, they can purchase uh, companies, uh, you know, in the billions of dollars um, with relevance to them. And but, um, you know, I think all of them happen to be the biggest companies on the planet right now in terms of um, the the Metas, the uh, the Apples, the Amazons, uh, Netflix, which has dabbled in uh, into gaming and um, uh, and of course, Alphabet, Google. So um, there I think they're going to be placed for other other publishers like that um, as well in kind of leads to, um, you know, the, the, the last, uh, I think we've got on the survey, you asked about legal issues. This is a legal podcast. The, I think the eighth, um, registering legal issue was antitrust actions. And I think again, there, the perception in the marketplace was focused on something different. Um, more so, uh, Apple and Fortnite and their litigation and Apple's, you know, control of, uh, of, of, of its ecosystem and, you know, um, Epic's fight with them um, with Fortnite. But um, I think the reality is there's going to be a lot of scrutiny on some of these deals in terms of what does it mean for the consumer? What does it mean for the industry? Um, ultimately, less competition is usually not good. But in this case, there could be some benefits in that there's a lot of capital requirement to meet the demands of the market in terms of what people are looking for. Um, the audience is looking for in terms of constantly updated um, titles and new titles, and uh, it's all very expensive. And then, you know, enter the metaverse, which is even more expensive to build and create. Um, it, 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 uh, there's only a handful of companies that can do that. Absolutely. And do you think then, though, one of the things that could happen then is a bit like with Riot with League of Legends and, you know, people have been very, let's say, that I've spoken to at least, and have said that they've had more confidence because the way they they structure their I think they you know their their sort of partnership stroke looks like a franchise type um, you know closely type model um, it gives more security to those people investing particularly at teen level that if you have if Microsoft or you know all those big companies that you mentioned decide that say hey actually 
we want to create a league structure around this and actually put it in place that you know the investors could have you know a five years you know at least security that they're going to be entered into a certain competition you you know you could envision there being suddenly it becomes again to invest back into the team side of things a little bit more um maybe attractive you said to the private equity groups rather than just the ventures at that point but um yeah on the flip side of that you also wonder what's going to happen more broadly in tech and antitrust in terms of as things develop yeah i don't know by the way zynga was the acquisition of, uh, that's it, that's two, the one, yeah. uh, for 11 billion prior week prior um then record but um no i i it, it's it's hard to say i i think um look with microsoft's acquisition of activision blizzard it, it could go in any direction i think there are a lot of nervous people who have invested in activision blizzard's leagues prior um you know overwatch league and, and call of duty because you know to some extent in aggregate, it's meaningful money, right? Like 25 million a franchise times a dozen franchises, even even by Microsoft standards, you know, registers. Um, but ultimately, um, the economics of it, uh, you know, are not going to be a factor for Microsoft. Like absorbing those kinds of losses are easy for them to do. Um, it's really going to come down to strategy, and they have a very focused strategy. It appears on the gaming side. Um, they have traditionally uh, avoided the, uh, the sort of um, you know, esports uh, competitive gaming model when it comes to gaming, and whereas Activision Blizzard has very much embraced it, um, I think there's that. So this could go either way, right? And I think that's what everybody's uh, some people holding their breath about it, you know, with bated breath. But um, uh, but I think everyone's waiting to see which way they go because they could embrace that uh which they seem to be doing somewhat with their new halo title and organizing you know competitions around that um but are they going to be open competitions are they going to be organized leagues um that that you know you're starting with a company that hasn't bought into that ecosystem prior now um and you've got other you know the other giant in the industry is you know tencent and riot um with the biggest title in the world still league of legends and they have had a mixed bag of success in terms of uh, of their their franchise leagues. Very different. They they went they did not do the very city based traditional sports model um, or try to at least. Activision Blizzard was sort of derailed by by the pandemic, but in terms of the execution, but uh, uh, the uh, you know there's a, that sort of decentralized sports uh, that, that esports model which is part of the endemic esports culture that riots employed there um but again it sort of ran into the you know as i mentioned at the top um of this um you know ran into issues monetizing on the media side because there's not a, a competitive media market for esports yet um and uh but also on the brand side actually activision blizzard's done a, had done a really good job to date in terms of the sponsorship side but still um you know the, the revenue coming in is not commensurate with what the product and the audience is. So, um, all that said, I don't know. Like, it's it's hard to say uh, where where these things go. Um, I do know that you know something becomes um, less important to a giant company. They tend to outsource uh, the services to experts uh, as opposed to trying to own it and take on the burden and responsibility for that to try to own the upside when the economics don't matter as much as the execution. So. Um, that that you know like that uh, doesn't bode well for the leagues that had been built before 
but um, there could be a sense of partnership and um, there are other dynamics involved too um, with these deals in that, you know, Overwatch, for example, is massively popular in China and uh, their Activision Blizzard has a lot of strong relationships in China on the, on its games uh, and, and titles um, uh, activations there and, uh, and it's, and it's businesses there and Microsoft doesn't. So if, if it's a ge geography strategy or China strategy, um, all of a sudden, the, the gaming stuff could be, you know, elevated in, in importance and given a degree of independence and that funding um, it requires. So um, a, lot of, a lot of moving pieces. Absolutely. And, and uh, yeah, you, you've articulated this brilliantly. And those all, thanks for giving us your, your insights into the, just the thought process. Because I think also when you add into the mix, as you say, these you know, sort of antitrust side of things and the risks to these big companies that may also dictate how far they go because they may think actually it's fine for us to acquire this company but actually being too structured around this and not facilitating the community um may get us in trouble with the uh, yeah with the authorities so maybe we won't get too hands-on uh in that regards but it's brilliant um to, to see it's fascinating just intellectually and you know just <laughs> more broadly uh, you know, to, to look and use it. I always say that the reason why I found esports so interesting initially, uh, through who, who got introduced really by Ian Smith at the Esports Integrity Coalition initially in the first instance was um, just because when you, you gives you another another um, object to sort of compare and contrast with traditional sports and what else is going on. And obviously everything sort of moving in this sort of convergence, <laughs> you know, it seems that um, it's, it's brilliant to see how different people are tackling different problems, different challenges, and particularly in a global sense. One of those challenges that seem to be everyone's trying to sort of get to grips with is uh, crypto <laughs> mm -hmm. from the cryptocurrency perspective and from the non-fungible tokens. What's your take in terms of how that's influencing um, from the, or, or did, what did you pick up from the survey in terms of what's going on within sort of the crypto space uh, within um, esports? Yeah, that's, that's also interesting. And I mean, keeping in mind our, our prior discussion was really, you know, centered around one deal, although it was, you know, the biggest deal in the history, you know, probably will be for a long time of the, of the esports industry. Um, there's a lot of other interesting dynamics and deals and, um, you know, different publishers acquiring different publishers for different reasons, mobile and mobile gaming and, and competitive mobile esports is a, another whole dynamic. Um, yeah. But on the crypto side, yeah. NFTs are, um, you know, I mean, both, I think for all of the sports and entertainment world, um, you know, increasingly mainstream and um i think there's a there's a big popularity factor with them uh, interestingly in the esports world well i mean for those that aren't aware so nfts are essentially a, a blockchain coded you know uh you know barcode right um so so as i think that's a simple way to look at it so it's a way to register something as yours and to the extent it's digital and seems ridiculous, people will pay hundreds of thousands of dollars or a million dollars for, um, you know, something you can right click and copy and, you know, and send to someone in three seconds, the same exact thing. Um, there's a degree of pride and ownership in the same way that, you know, owning a baseball card or uh, um, what's more relatable in the UK. Um, uh, people, people, uh, baseball cards, football cards. Did, did, you, did yeah. you do that? Okay, great. Um, <laughs> Or I'd like to say this might not. Did you, did you guys have Cabbage Patch Kids? Are you two? two yeah, yeah. We know we had we had Cabbage yeah. Patch Kids. I mean, back in the day when I was a kid, I mean, people were paying you know thousands of dollars for a silly doll just because it was 
hard to get. It was part of a culture. Beanie Babies, there's another good one. Um, so, so to me, it's like, yeah, it's it makes sense. It's a way to sort of digitize collectability and and that's a big thing in in in, in thick cultures um, like sport has and even thicker in esports it hasn't been that big in esports yet uh and may not be in part because what what i some of this is generational and it's baked into esports because it's pretty much you know gen z plus you know, some millennial crossover and some people like me the gen xers with you know feet in both both worlds but um it, the esports community is very, uh, uh, it's all about authenticity and um, will support uh, a brand uh, like, you know, like, like family if it supports something they care about and love, like an esports team or a streamer or what have you. And that's very different than, my, um, you know, my generation, right? Gen X and, and I think an older, um, where we always sort of saw advertising as something dirty. But I think that sort of translates into this question of NFTs and esports, and that uh, there's been a lot of skepticism about it, and uh, it's really um, I think there's a perception of there being sort of uh, uh, a money grab <laughs> with with a lot of what's going on with the silliness that's uh, uh, you know that I'm not going to name specific names and things, but I think there's been a lot of and silly NFTs sales that have happened um, that seem more exploitative rather than um you know delivering something to the culture and, uh, and that's really interestingly what's held it back uh, in esports you see more of it in traditional sports like you see um you know professional american football players um and uh and european football players too now but um uh and teams and, and you know putting things out and making money and certainly entertainers um off of NFT, uh, nfts than you do um uh, esports folks, which you would think would be more prevalent given the, the native digital, you know, factor of, of everything in that, in that world. But, um, it's sort of been chilled a bit. Um, I think there are a lot of practical applications for digital barcodes slash NFTs, right. Ultimately, um, that, um, that do deliver value and interesting things. I think even some on the sports side, traditional sports sides, there's been some really interesting activations in terms of deliverables on uh, uh, uh with the nfts but um it's it's actually been held back a little bit on the esports side to answer your question um because of that degree of skepticism and and sort of uh uh you know a bad uh perception in the marketplace yeah we, we've we've heard the same thing from from a whole we've held a couple of panel sessions at our conferences um on this and my colleagues uh chris and manan particularly uh, uh chris bond who's you know a bit of a um crypto expert uh, in that regards and um you know speaking to people like andrew cook when he was at fanatic he was saying the same things it's a bit of a shame really because there's some, as you were saying some really cool applications and sometimes it you know it's being met with this sort of skepticism in terms of um then in terms of like cryptocurrency more broadly obviously you mentioned you know earlier about you know obviously being native on a device or yeah um in this ecosystem what's kind of your take on the on the cryptocurrency side of things Look, I mean, crypto has been a part of the esports world for a long time. There are a lot of, uh, you know, gamers that are millionaires at a very, very young age because they had a bunch of, of Bitcoin to, you know, buy skins or whatever back in 2015 or whatever it was. Right. Um, so I, I don't I think it's it's the, the culture, again, is very much I, I have a lot of respect for 
millennials and post millennials because I think I, their values are incredible. Um, you know, sort of ideal in a lot of ways. But um, I think that it's a very pragmatic um, approach to crypto. I don't think um, like you don't see um, uh, you know any exploitative coins being. Not I shouldn't say any, but I, you know at scale or of consequence to the culture. Um, uh, that's not really a thing in esports, but um, but there is a practical matter. Um, you know, crypto is and has been used uh, to facilitate transactions and payments and things like that. So um, I don't I don't see it as a growth part. I don't think anybody really does um, uh, of of esports uh, because uh, again, I think there's that sort of you know practical authentic check uh, that occurs um, for it uh, within esports, but. You know, I think you remove esports from the conversation. Both those things, NFTs and cryptocurrency. Yeah, it's like you know, it's it's a it's a wild west factor in terms of uh, businesses popping up and and people trying to do things with it to make money. Uh, and some are, um, but I think I, I would say I kind of agree with the esports culture skepticism of of a lot of that stuff. If that makes sense. Did you, did you know my, my <laughs> at the start of the podcast and now I keep thinking to myself, more money, more problems is kind of the tail of the tape, right? In the sense of the, as you said, the more success, yeah. the more visibility, the more complex. And, you know, as you're talking, um, I think it's a really good, you summed it up very nicely. But what's um, really great, and I, I don't mean, I'm sorry to interrupt, but what's really great about esports though, and I think why you see so many smart, good, hardworking people trying to figure it out um, is that, the undeniable reality is substantive. It's an audience of five or 600 million people, global, highly educated, tons of disposable income, a um, couple of hundred million of them avid, um, uh, two thirds of them don't even watch traditional sports, right? If they do, if they, if they do they're dipping their toes in the water. Um, so there's this whole, you know, gigantic segment of the entertainment market that is invested in this right like not not financially you know maybe that too but um but have been you know invested culturally in this and so it's real and and there's businesses to be built within it and around it um so so that's what makes it really interesting to me as opposed as opposed to a lot of other things in technology um that aren't necessarily growthy or additive to anything um you know there, there's there's real solutions to be found within esports that can deliver value to that culture and community and the business interests within it. I, I think it's a great observation. I remember I was very fortunate. I'm not just name dropping, but I got invited to the uh, world finals uh, by, by um, from um, uh, Riot Games. And it was uh, absolutely fantastic experience and they call them like rioters i didn't realize how much that culture and, and community that you're talking about sort of existed and i also got to see it firsthand um it was absolutely fantastic and you know i kind of got a glimpse and thought oh okay this is now i can see why this is attractive to people right i knew right from a gaming perspective why it was but it was more the community aspect and um i also saw thought, thought there was many more synergies than i previously thought that with traditional sport in terms of that community aspect um right and and i would argue even more yeah right because it's it, it's broader it's thicker it's not as regional and right sport to sport or team to team but what's the real you know horrifying thing for people in traditional sports which is not you know acknowledged widely <laughs> so all these esports efforts are made to sort of you know 
hopefully head the problem off at the pass, but their audiences are actually shrinking every sport, even, even soccer. I mean, soccer is the biggest sport in the world, but, um, but it's, you know, so it's a little bit less so because of the scale, but, you know, focusing on the U S like all of our major sports leagues, the big four are, are shrinking in terms of its audience and they're aging out and they're being replaced by, you know, millennials and post millennials who, who, you know, majority of which don't watch it. So it's a, it's a challenge. And uh, so I think a lot of the activity you see with traditional sports leagues, the big ones um, in esports, it, it's, it's it, the beginning, this is sort of part of the, uh, the maturation too. In the beginning, I think there was a perception of, hey, we can make some money with this. Um, the ones that are doing it right um, completely understand that, hey, this is a need to tap into this audience to make them aware of our product too. And, and hopefully they'll, they'll be a part of this and that uh, it's not an either or it's not a zero sum game, but the ones that are not respecting the culture and not doing that are the ones that um, are being left behind. No, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely agree. And it's, it's fascinating, particularly the one thing I was thinking about with, the, as you were talking about with the traditional sort of sports as well, is that obviously as you see these sort of, you know, trending sort of decreasing numbers, you see um, obviously the increasing cost to actually watch sport right so you know particularly like ufc talked about up in their pay i think they just up their pay-per-view and others and over here with, with other sports you know it's always you know how can we work out another way to monetize that media rights coverage that we've you know spent a lot of money to acquire the rights for um and and that becomes a problem because naturally then you reduce your size of audience and the community that you're reaching um, and then you'd end up in this cycle where they start to go to free to view TV for selected games to be the sort of catch all. But is that really sustainable in the long term to, you know, develop a meaningful relationship with your essentially your customer, your fan base that they actually want to invest in, you know, participate? You know, particularly, as you were saying, in, in traditional sport, you have to physically go, whereas in esports, obviously, you can, you know, participate even to a um you know even if it's not the, the, the top end though but you can certainly participate online um from anywhere in the world pretty much as as a as, a, as an avid fan or part of the community from anywhere right whereas you know if you want to play basketball or football you know you need better pitches better courts better nets better everything else that goes with it and obviously you could you know there is an argument obviously for the technological aspect you know better computers yeah, it means better performance and etc. But uh, more broadly, just that entry point's a little bit easier. Um, Bobby, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Fascinating. I think you know, yeah, you know, I might even listen back to this because I think some of those observations were um, really insightful. I've read through the report, hence why we're doing the podcast. I think it was brilliant, as did my colleagues. Really useful, great snapshot about what people are thinking, and I think the key point that Bobby said at the beginning the show was about it's really important to understand people's perception of the marketplace um and you know from all the sports lawyers and uh, business people who are listening of course that influences then the sort of regulatory approach the one thing we didn't get onto and maybe you can just give me sorry and this is my fault i had it down as a question in that aspect then there's you know one of the things that we that you touched on in the report i think that it seemed to be that there was a, a call for a sort of single overarching regulatory body for esports what was your view on that is it a realistic expectation do you think it will happen or um no no i, I mean <laughs> simple answer is no it's 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 not realistic it's not going to happen um and the reason being the there's just too much fragmentation in uh you know in the real world right like there are various publishers that have various and competing interests 
uh, the tournament organizers, there's the culture itself that's going to have its own expectations. And uh, so it's not, it's not reasonable to sort of project upon it an IOC type of regulatory uh, you know, construct um, because it's not that, right? Like it's, it's, it's not one sport, it's many sports owned by many different people, whereas nobody owns any of these sports under the IOC umbrella, right? Like you and I could start a, a basketball league tomorrow if we wanted to. So, um, but nobody could do another Fortnite league. So um, it's, it, it, for all those reasons, I think that I know there's been attempts, including, you know, one of my colleagues, Ken Hirschman, um, and, and a group of some of the most prominent esports and most powerful esports teams uh, attempted to, uh, to do that a few years back. Um, uh, with an organization called WISA. I think there, there's a lot of, you know, people and organizations out there purporting to be regulatory bodies. Um, and even within countries that purport to regulate esports, like you know, how much, um, you know, power uh, can they really have over it? I, I think if to the extent it becomes a part of the actual IOC construct, which I think is, you know, inevitable considering some of the ridiculous sports that you see at the Olympics, um, and it's, you know, kicking and screaming, uh, the IOC community seems to be um, acknowledging that this is an important thing to embrace, probably for a lot of the reasons I, I mentioned earlier about the traditional sports leagues here. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, it's, uh, it's, it's too fragmented. There are too many, not just p different pieces, but some of those pieces have, you know, more power and weight and uh, control um, then, then you know, one was is able to do that. The only way it's possible, and this is why it's not possible, is if all of those powers that be agreed somehow to to be aligned under a single organization. But there's really not a reason, and especially when the biggest power players in this industry are publicly reporting corporations responsible to their shareholders first. There's really no reason for them to ever do that. And also, then you got again, you just come into antitrust issues as we've seen. Yeah, with various challenges to governing bodies of sport, international federations in particular, around their licensing structures and et cetera, you know, allowing athletes to participate with the ice skating case yeah, and, right. and so forth. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, again, you run through this sort of thought, thought experiment and you just th see massive problems. But and if you break if you break it down too, esports is not one game, right? It's many. If we focused on one game, let's pretend that we wanted to do a regulatory body for Fortnite. Would Epic ever I mean, unless Epic is that regulatory body, would they ever agree to it? And, and even then, they already are that regulatory body for that, right? So, um, it, it's so. But to answer the question more, you know, you know, fully, fully, uh, this vis-a-vis -vis the survey, that is a very interesting data point that has grown over time too. I think what that reflects is the market's desire for less fragmentation and. The reality is it's not going to happen. Um, it would be better for everybody, investors, operators, sponsors, um, maybe the publishers, probably not though, um, but everybody else to, to make that sort of thing happen. But especially the, the, the big moneyed interests, media companies and the brands, right? Especially that want some, you know, more, more, uh, you know, solid lines and boxes and, and to understand the space um, and, and where they want to sit within it. Um, because right now it's just, it's very complicated and, and complex. And that's, I think, unfortunately, that's always going to be the reality for people who want to connect with 
that community meaning for people who want to connect with connect with uh, Gen Z and future generations. And yeah, as you were describing that, I was thinking about sort of the lower ends of football in the sort of the more developed footballing countries, and you see the same thing politics, different aspirations of the clubs. We saw it with, obviously with the European Super League. You know, football has got this long history in particular internationally. And so it's got more of a, you know, a structure in place. But even then, it's very difficult for people to, you know, make a good return on investment in football outside of some of the, you know, the top clubs, right? It's, it's difficult because of the politics, the, the complexities, the internationalization of players moving around all over the place. So, right. yeah, there are definitely weaknesses built into the, uh, football is a great example. Um, but European football, but there, there's definitely weaknesses built into the system, but there's a system. And so if you're a media company or an investor or a brand, you can pick your spot in that system, right? You know what the machine looks like, you know, okay, that's a good spot. That's a bad spot. That's good spots going to be expensive or more expensive than that other spot. And you can pick your spots. Esports is it's really hard to pick your spots. Like, you know, rewind to the early part of the conversation. If you put 25, you know, 30 plus million dollars into an Overwatch team, you're probably not so happy right now, right? Or at least not not in a comfortable place, um, um, right? Much less anybody who wants to make a fresh investment today. So, um, you know, but it's, it, it, people get that there's a huge gap in terms of the economics and being delivered, the monetization of that audience. So um, like I was saying earlier, like it, it's, 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 it's a really interesting exercise and obviously potentially very lucrative to be able to figure out where where the opportunities and are. And then the final point of that puzzle as well is as you were talking about who fills the void in terms of sort of you know creating these, as you said, harder lines in terms of like you know, making more certainty in the market through for greater regulation is typically if a sector doesn't do it, the governments start to step in and for money. Well, but, yeah. And the problem is look, look, yeah. look at what happened in China exactly. right, with these ports. Exactly. We didn't even talk about that. No, right? no, exactly. Yeah. And so you start to look in, you go, well, yeah, of course, we'd like to get our own house in order if you're in that sector quite quickly and or if you want to invest in that sector before you start to get governments telling you what they should or shouldn't do, which which may or may not work in your favor. That that maybe that is the only leverage point anybody has on the trillion dollar companies that are going to be running the space going forward, right? It's uh, uh, is that right? Maybe maybe that in particular, the Chinese government, which is not afraid to to take a heavy hand <laughs> things, uh, and and uh, and that market that everybody wants access to. Like I said, you know, not something that's written about a lot, but um, there's there's very you know, strong and strategic relationships that Activision Blizzard has in China that Microsoft doesn't. So that might be worth the entire, you know, at least a good chunk of that $70 billion to Microsoft. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and again, this shows you the, sort of the complexities of the issues that are at play here and the politics and everything else, geopolitics and um, the, the, you know, and the strategic maneuvers. It's absolutely fascinating. Robbie, what a real pleasure to have you on the podcast thoroughly enjoyed the, the conversation thank you thanks for having me Sean. morning 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 time your time uh for everyone who's tuning in um if you enjoyed the podcast if you enjoyed the discussion if you agree or disagree we'd love to hear from you uh, of course reach out to, to myself bobby obviously if you liked what he said and um you know you can f uh, find his details with link to his profile so you can do that uh, directly uh, and thank you very much for tuning in i hope you enjoyed the show remember for all the latest legal issues and developments from the world of sport, go to lawandsport.com and follow us on all the regular social media channels that you can find or podcast channels. So other than that, I hope you have a great rest of your day.